Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. This proverb describes a natural phenomenon. The wise man shields himself from trouble, and the simpleton suffers from it. In this, we learn that wisdom prescribes action. Wisdom dictates that we do something. The second law of thermodynamics is called entropy. And what that means is that if nothing interferes, Things devolve into chaos. They find equilibrium. And God created the world this way. He intended to have men to take dominion over the earth. He intended for us to be proactive. And if we refuse to obey him and to do his will, the world becomes a mess and it gets uglier and messier. When the Israelites who conquered the Canaanites moved into the promised land, one of the reasons that God lists for why he didn't remove all the Canaanites at once was in regard to this truth. In Exodus 23, God said, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. So therefore, we have a responsibility to be proactive in establishing our Lord's dominion over the earth. Moreover, Jesus has redeemed us and given us the picture of how to do that really. When Adam failed to take dominion as God commanded him, Jesus succeeds in taking dominion. This proverb does not mean that everybody who suffers is guilty or culpable. Some simpletons are not able to help it. They either cannot perceive the evil or they have no power to avert themselves from it. They either need to be cared for or taught. In other words, they need to be loved. And this, the kinds of people I'm talking are children, or the aged, the handicapped, the infirmed. That's the kind of, of person. However, there is a simpleton who is capable to perceive and does not. This might be driven by laziness, by cultural blindness, or hard-heartedness. And this failure to see and failure to act is a sin, and it has corresponding consequences. God judges, and the simpleton's punishment is just. If we want to learn wisdom and to foresee evil and avoid it, if we don't want to be simple and suffer, we must start where wisdom always starts, and that is with humility and the fear of the Lord. So this reminds us of our need to confess our sins, Let's humble ourselves and bow before our God and kneel as we pray to Him, our most holy, gracious, and patient Father.
mini-series that I've entitled Extraordinary Providence by Ordinary Means. In the first of these sermons, we saw how God used the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, to deliver Paul from a mob outside the temple. And then God used Paul's Roman citizenship to deliver Paul from a scourging by the Romans. So God used those ordinary means, the Roman commander and Paul's citizenship, to deliver Paul and to further his story. And two weeks ago, we discovered how God used Paul's knowledge of the inner circles of the Sanhedrin to divide them. Paul, when Paul was brought, up, brought before the Sanhedrin, uh, and he was attacked by the, the chief priest, um, Paul recognized that this was not a fair court, and he used his knowledge of the inner workings there to, to split them. He said, I'm a Pharisee. And then he was protected by the Pharisees and, and hated by the Sadducees. But in the end, the court was uh, split. And Lysias, again, another ordinary means, was used to save him from the, the, that court. Because they were pulling him apart. Our text this morning again gives us a powerful picture of how the Lord works in our world. We pick up where we left off last time. And it's with Jesus' appearance to Paul in custody. We're given an epiphany. Paul has an epiphany, and we're told about it. And an epiphany is a manifestation or a revelation. So Paul's in custody, and, and so the first verse we're going to read is verse 11. And that's a, uh, Jesus appearing to Paul. And then the rest of our text is, is right after this epiphany, we see the mechanism of history put into play in order to accomplish God's decreed will. So let's see what uh, the, this epiphany shows us. It, it shows us that God is on mission. He knows what's going to happen. He knows everything that is happening, and he knows all the details. God is on mission. Verse 11. Acts 23. Should open my Bible. There. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So, last time we covered this verse, we primarily focused on the comforting and encouraging aspects of this. And these are very important and true. Paul was, he was in a dark place. I mean, he, he'd just been beaten and tried to be killed two days in a row. Um, he was not being effective in his ministry to the Jews. Um, and Jesus comes and he comforts and he encourages him. But we focused on that two weeks ago. Today... I want to draw attention to this text as a prophecy. Jesus is obviously concerned about Paul's welfare. He says, be of good cheer. But he is interested in the story proceeding and going forth. He's giving Paul marching orders. He's telling Paul what to do. He says, you must also bear witness at Rome. So this is also prophecy. And in this, Paul learns that he is in God's will. He is doing the right thing. And at the same time, he hears only what he needs to hear, and he hears it when he needs to hear it. And this is an important fact. It's an important aspect of Christian faith. If God is eternal and omniscient and all-powerful, he knows what we need to hear, and he knows 
when we need to hear it. Now, this is because, and this, the reason this is important is because there are many things about life in this world that can cause us to despair. There's a lot of facts about this world that will just cause us to just throw up our hands and give up. And this is the consequence of sin, either our own sin or the sin of others. And it's ultimately the Adam's sin. That's, that's what it's, this is all death. It's, death is confusing, it's despairing. And in, in many ways, death is all around us, as it was for Paul. I mean, death, Paul is stoned, beaten, kicked, you know, accused, falsely accused, slapped by the high priest. He was threatened with scourging. I mean, he's got death, death, death. And as we're about to see, the next thing that happens is there's a, a plot to kill Paul. You know, more death, death, death's everywhere. That's the consequences of sin. But it's the same for us. Uh, things can be despairing you know, if you find yourself unable to accomplish a task. You, you, you lose your job. If you, you run up against corruption in, in, in authority figures. Or if you're betrayed by someone that you're close to, that you love. You, you, you have hopes and dreams for yourself. You set yourself goals. And you look at your life and you're just not getting there. A, a car accident, a, a, a sickness, or a, a decline in your health, the death of a loved one. This world is full of hard things that can cause men to despair. And yet, in the midst, in the midst of this, in the middle of this world, God has revealed Himself to us. God, he shows up. I mean, that's, that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus appears. God comes to us where we are in the midst of our misery and pain and death. And when he shows up, he has, he has two things for us. One is comfort, forgiveness, grace, mercy. And the other is a, is a purpose. It's a mission. It's a calling. He says, I love you. That's the grace. That's the mercy. I forgive you. The grace, the mercy. And you need to be who I'm turning you into. That's the calling. That's the, the purpose, the mission. He expects us to be a certain kind of person. God, when he, when he comes into our hearts, when he sends his spirit into us, he changes us into uh, the, what the Bible calls a peculiar people or a holy people, a set-apart people. We are a peculiar people set apart for God, for his service. We belong to him, body and soul. That's why the great commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. God wants us to be that kind of person. And what it means for us is that we need to be courageous. We live in a dark and despairing world. But we need to be courageous because we believe. We know that God is there. We're not alone. We know that we are his witnesses. We must be bold, courageous. Second, we need to be hopeful. We need to be hopeful because we know and we trust that He is God and He's in control of our circumstances and the events in our life and there's no need for us to despair. We need hope. So 
we need to be bold, we need to be hopeful, and we need to be passionate. We need to be on fire. And we need to be passionate because God has given us a task. He's given us a mission. We have marching orders. We are the church militant. God doesn't want us to be lukewarm. And life is short. So it's a race. And there's a prize at the end. Be passionate. Live fully. Put your heart into it. So we need to be bold. We need to be hopeful. We need to be passionate. We need to be patient. The fourth one is patient because God is in control and His timing is perfect. He has what we need to hear, but when we need to hear it. So that means we need to wait on Him. Because God's timing is perfect, we must wait on Him to do His will in us because we belong to Him. And finally, in tying all these things together, we need to be obedient and faithful. Two ways of saying the same thing. We need to, to be humble. We need to be willing to do what God wants us to do. And when he asks us to do it. The reason we can trust God in this is because he is omniscient. He knows everything. He is faithful. And he is the author and we are the characters in the story. He's writing a grand story. And, and he, what he tells us about the story is that it's good. And so that means we can trust him. So while God knows the outcome of events, we also see that his enemies do not. God's enemies are not omniscient. God is omniscient. His enemies are not. Verses 12 through 15. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So here we're introduced to the next threat to Paul's well-being. We have a very zealous group of angry men, more than 40 of them. And they bind themselves under an oath. And this is basically what they're saying. This is the kind of oath they were taking. If I eat or drink before we kill Paul, then I will be cursed. I will be damned to hell. Let it be so to me. The Greek word they use there is, is the same word we, we derive the word anathema from. That's an old word. It was the word that the Roman church did used against the, 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 the reformers at the Council of Trent. Let them be anathema. Let them be damned. 
Right? That's a verb, anathematizo. Is that this way? He's saying, let, the, let us be anathema if we don't kill Paul, if we eat or drink before we kill Paul. And then they come up with a reasonable plan to accomplish their sordid business. So they, they're, they're, they come to the, 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 the chief priests. The chief priests were, were the Sanhedrin, of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. They were the group that particularly hated Paul. And they tell them to, to gather the whole council, which would have included the Pharisees, for a reasonable purpose, to, to draw Paul out, to have further discussion about what the, the charges are. But, but they say, you get Paul out in the open, out of that fortress up there, and we will assassinate him. So they colluded with Paul's enemies in the Sanhedrin to accomplish this, but here's the problem. Here's their problem. They don't know that God is about to make them look like a bunch of fools. They're not omniscient. Paul had recently written this on his way to Jerusalem. God works all things for the good of those who love him. Romans 8.28 God is fully cognizant of this rebellion and they're, 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 they're plotting against Paul. Uh, in, in, First in, in 1 Corinthians 2, we read Paul's own words about how this works. He says, in 1 Corinthians 2, starting verse 7, he says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul's talking about the crucifixion there. And he's saying, he's saying, they didn't know what they were doing when they did that. Because if they had known, they would not have done that. Now, it's not because Paul is hiding the truth from the Sanhedrin. Paul's not trying to be tricky. He's not trying to be underhanded or sneaky. God's not. God is manifesting himself to man. He sent Jesus to men. Paul's openly proclaiming the gospel. He's, Paul's been trying to declare the truth and tell them about how God works. He's, he's declaring the free grace of God. But they just won't have any of it. Their hearts are hardened. Their, their minds are closed. But if they knew and understood, they wouldn't do it. Because if they knew and understood, they would understand two things. First, that what they're doing will actually further the gospel instead of stop it. And God uses this, this persecution to further the gospel. It, it, them doing what they're doing is accomplishing the opposite of what they're trying to accomplish. Second, if they really truly understood and knew what they were doing, they would see how they were fighting against God. And recognize their own arrogance and stupidity. They're preparing an eternity of judgment and shame for themselves. But they can't see this. They're not omniscient and their hearts are closed. Their minds, they're just, they're, they're set on their path. Um, as we read in our scripture passage from Luke this morning, you know, they won't hear Moses or the prophets. It, it wouldn't matter if they killed Paul and Paul rose up from the dead right in front of them. They still wouldn't hear him. That's what Jesus was saying in the parable. 
If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't hear somebody who comes back from the dead. How do we know this? Well, Jesus came back from the dead, and Paul's telling them what Jesus said. They won't hear him. They won't acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit. They were there for Pentecost. They were in Jerusalem. They'd, they'd seen the, the, the miracles of sight and healing, raising people from the dead. They'd seen it. They won't acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit. Or the simple logic of the Apostle's message. Remember, he had just the day before declared his testimony. He said, this is what happened. It's A, B, C, and here I am. This is, what, this is my life. They won't hear it. They won't listen. So they're, 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 they're not omniscient, they're not, their minds are closed, and they're, they're fighting against God. So they proceed with their task. And yet we gloriously see that God uses ordinary means to deliver his saints. The first of which in our story is family relations, verses 16 through 21. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand and went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So here we see family relations used to deliver Paul. We don't know much about Paul's nephew or his sister. This, this is the only passage that are mentioned in the Bible. They're, we don't have outside confirmation from the Bible. It's just, that's all we have right here in this text. He was a young man. Uh, that was the eight, we don't know. It was 12, we don't know. Uh, he was, he, it, 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 the text tells us that the commander led him out by the hand, so you, you might think he's a, maybe a little younger. Um, but we just don't know exactly how old he was. We know that he was courageous and prudent. He was willing to deliver this message about assassins trying to kill his uncle. And he was able to do it, so he was prudent, you know. And, so, and we know that somehow he found out about the plot. And that's a good question. Like, how did that happen? We don't know. That's an interesting question to ask. But regardless, we do know that God uses him to bring this plot to both Paul and to the Claudius Lysias. There are billions of different connections that exist between people and events and circumstances. I mean, the, the world is a small place. You, you go travel somewhere and you meet somebody who knows somebody that knew somebody that billions of connections. Or I was there when that, oh, we were there at the same time. Billions of connections. I, oh, that's my nephew or my, my sister's brother's cousin. Yeah, it's crazy, I know. That's the world we live in. And the cold, hard facts, truth of the matter is that we just can't make all the connections. Our minds aren't that big. Our computers aren't that big. We, 
we, we just can't control everything and how it turns out. It's impossible. Paul's enemies could never in a million years have foreseen that his nephew was listening in on their, their, their plotting. Or they would not have taken the foolish vow that they took. And they wouldn't have let the nephew find out. Or they would have found some other way to counteract the, the course of events. But how would they possibly know? They, I mean, we know because we're reading the story after the fact. Hindsight's twenty twenty. But the world is complex and complicated. And the best laid plans are subject to God's will. It doesn't mean we shouldn't claim. It doesn't mean we should just stop. Well, we should just go along with the flow. That's not what it means. We, we need to be proactive. We need to make plans. We, I mean, we, we're going to see here in, in a second. Well, we, we see that Paul's nephew was proactive. He heard something. He was like, i got to tell Paul. This is important. It's a big deal. So, Paul's nephew is proactive. Paul himself is proactive. And, and so was Lysias. Case in point. Verses 22 to 30. Lysias hears this. He's like, oh, we got to do something about this. So, this is what he does. 22 to 30. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And then he wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So Claudius was proactive. We also see that he's motivated by politics. God uses nephews to carry out his plan. He uses politics to carry out his plan. We, God is using political motivations to accomplish his will here. Lysias was not naive. I mean, he was a man who had a lot of authority, and he was in charge of keeping peace in Jerusalem, which was a big task. He's not naive. He didn't just fall off the turnip truck. He's a smart cookie. Now, he couldn't figure Paul out. That was a problem. I mean, he, he'd been trying for two or three days. He... This guy's an enigma to me. Oh, you're not a Roman, an Egyptian ruffian. Um, well then, oh, you're Roman. Oh, okay. Put it before the, he puts him before the Sanhedrin. Paul accuses it himself. He brings the charges against himself and splits the Sanhedrin. Like, Lysias is pulling his hair out trying to figure Paul out. But he, he does know one thing. He, he knows that Paul's controversial. And that in Jerusalem, it's like putting baking soda in vinegar. Not a good mix. It's a mess. So he's quick to pass the buck when the opportunity arises. Like, oh, there's a plot. Let's get him out of here. 
He also knew that Paul was a Roman and that he himself, Claudius Lysias, had narrowly missed overreaching in regard to Paul. When he first had taken him into custody, he was going to scourge him. That would have got, it could have got him in deep trouble. And so uh, we can see Lysias' political prowess in his actions, in getting rid of Paul, and in his letter. He writes to uh, he, he he writes a letter to to, to Felix, and, and in his actions, he tells Paul's nephew, "Don't tell anybody. Shh, be quiet." This is, keep this under your, your hat. I mean, that may, may have, that, that may have been to protect the nephew, because uh, if they were willing to kill Paul, they would have been happy to kill his nephew, I'm sure. But he sends Paul's nephew out in the command of silence, and then he writes to Felix in a slightly misleading manner, if you, if you didn't pick it up in the text. He minimizes his own shortcomings. He leaves out some of the details. He says about when he first rescues Paul, Coming with the truth, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. But we know the story. That's not quite how it happened. He just wanted to stop the mob, and so he, so he arrested Paul. And he learned that he was a Roman after he, he commanded that he be scourged. And that would have, could have got him in trouble. So he doesn't report it that way. So um, God uses political motivations then to deliver Paul from this threat, these, these assassins. And Lysias, sh Lysias ships him off to Caesarea, and he does so with a large cohort of soldiers sent off in the night. Um, in fact, uh, when I first read through this, I was like, seriously? They're sending one guy with 200 soldiers, 200 horsemen, or 70 horsemen, and 200 uh, spearmen. Or slingers. Uh, the word that's translated for spearmen there is, is, is not used very often in Greek, um, and it, it, it could easily it, it meant holding with the right hand. So it's probably like either javelin throwers uh, or uh, sling sling throwers. But um, that was nearly half of the military stationed in Jerusalem at Antonia. He sends ships them off in the night. So I, I, when I first read that, I was like, that's a, that's pretty that's a lot to so send Paul off. But then, as we, there's a couple things that, I, that came to light. First of all, is Roman citizenship is a big deal, and Paul uh, was a Roman, and and so so this this helps him in two ways. One is that it, it highlights the fact that he's a Roman and he needs protection from these crazy uh, Israelites. Uh, second, it kind of puts a little bit of a bandaid on how he had offended Paul by threatening to scourge him. Um, then another thing to consider is that the Romans weren't shy about demonstrating their military power. Uh, they, they, they're not afraid to, to, you know, put a show of force. Third, Jerusalem was a volatile place, and Paul's enemies had high ranks among the Jews. They're, they're, you know, they were. It was the chief priest and his cronies were the ones who hated Paul. Uh, and then the, the final consideration is that the, most of the soldiers came back the next day. Uh, we're going to read about that in just a second. But, you know, he sends them off. They bring him, they leave at 9 o'clock at night, bring him to Anapontris, and then, then 200 of the soldiers turn around and go back, and then the horsemen carry Paul on. But in all of this, God uses politics to deliver Paul. And in our culture, of especially conservative Americans, politics this kind of gets a bad name. <laughs> but God uses politics. Um, finally, we see deliverance in the simple performance of duty. 
ordinary means, simple performance of duty, verses 31 to 35. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and, and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So the soldiers are doing their job, and doing their job has the glorious result of Paul's deliverance from this vile plot to assassinate him. And uh, the grandeur of it on us, on us is, is not lost on us either. Paul was shipped out in the midst of 470 military men. He was delivered to Antipatris in the night and given a mount to make good time the next day with the cavalry. So God's grace is magnificent. He has style. He loves to you know, save us in like a big fashion. Like this is clearly God's deliverance. He's snubbing his enemies. God is making fun of these foolish men who've taken this vow. And he sits in the heavens and laughs at their meager attempts to foil his grand plan. As if they ever had the slightest chance in the world. But they refuse to humble themselves before God. So God uses all these basic and ordinary circumstances to deliver Paul. And in the end, his story is extraordinary. It's magnificent. Our world is a confusing place. I mentioned this earlier. Politicians politic. And it's ugly sometimes. Plotters plot. They, 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 you know, evil men try and do bad things. Intentional. It's evil, wicked, horrible. Justice gets perverted. Innocents die. Good people suffer wrong. But our text this morning gives us a unique perspective on all these things, and they all fall under the classical problem of evil. This is the greatest challenge to Christianity. This is, if you hear the most coherent arguments against our faith, it's, well, how do bad things happen? If God is good and God is all-powerful, why is this thing happening? Explain that to me. And people are bitter and angry at God because of evil. It's a problem, and it's, it's a genuine and legitimate problem. But the text that we have this morning is the only real answer out there for the problem. There's no other faith that really answers the problem. This, it's the message of the gospel. Either God is God and everything that happens is from Him, or God is not. That's your two options. Well, we deny that He's not God. So God is God. And if it's from God, then either God is good or he is not. Well, he's good. But we know this because God reveals himself to us. In the middle of the story, God gave us the answer to the problem in our world. In 2,000 years ago, God came down and died and nailed his son to the cross to pay for our sins. God used the most despicable act in all of human history to accomplish the salvation of men. And then he declared his victory over it in the resurrection. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why we have the Sabbath on Sunday. That's why we're here today and not yesterday. It's because God did it already. 
God nailed our sins to the cross. He used that crime to accomplish the only means of salvation. And in doing this, he, this, he shows us how he uses evil for good. We don't understand it. In the story, it's hard to see this. It's confusing. It's complicated. It's hard. But we have to trust God because he sees from his perspective, which is ultimate. And then as we see this and we believe this and we know this, we Christians have the duty of proclaiming this, what I'll call a spoiler alert, to the whole world. And it's not really a spoiler. It's a glorious message. That's good news. That's the only thing. That's the only salvation there is. It's the only hope we have is good news. We want everybody to know the joy and hope and blessing of peace with God. We can, we can be at peace with God. The one who made us. The one that we sinned against. The one who made everything around us. The one who's in control of the second law of thermodynamics. The one who's in control of how internal combustion engines work, or bombs, or politics, or science, or economics. He made all that stuff. And he knows every one of the billions and trillions of interconnections between people. He understands the spiritual realm, and he understands the physical realm. He understands our health, he understands our hearts. And we are broken, and we need a physician. And he loved us, and he died for us to give us salvation, and redemption, and peace. And he died for us, and he was resurrected, and now he lives so that we can have him, and have all good things through him. So because of this good news, this gospel, we don't need to fear death, or principalities, or powers, or Roman governments, or whatever. God is real and the story is true and as we embrace it and submit to his will for us he is changing the face of the earth by our obedience his kingdom is established he is establishing his kingdom under the leadership of Jesus Christ his son and Jesus judges all wickedness and he makes all things right in the end, so that every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when he looks at every single human being who stands before him at the judgment day, he's going to either say, I see my righteousness in you because your sins are paid for on that cross. Or he's going to say, you are damned. Because you've refused to accept the grace of God and humble yourself before me. But all men will fall down on their knees in that day. Now, we cannot see all the details, but the message of our text is gloriously that we don't need to. We don't need to know how it all works. Like, I get in my car and I'm very grateful that I can get to church on Sunday morning, and I don't get mud splashed on me, and I don't get rain in my face, but I don't know how all the things work in there. There's a lot of stuff going on there, but I'm in the car and it's getting me there. I know what I need to know to get there. I know where the gas pedal is and the steering wheel and how to drive the, the laws of the road. That's what Christianity is like. It's like if you have faith, you're on the airplane. And this is the airplane's going to get there. If you believe in Jesus, that you, you are on the ship. If you're baptized and faithful in the church, you're saved. 
You confess your sins. He's faithful, and He's just, and He will forgive them. So we know what we need to know. We can see Jesus, and that's enough. And He says to us, He looks at us, and He, he, he manifests Himself to us, and He says, you know what He says? He says, be of good cheer. Buck up. Be hopeful. Be courageous. I can see what's coming. I know how it all works. And it's better than you can imagine. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. and sovereignly ordained that we are to celebrate our salvation and our Lord's victory by means of bread and wine. Here we are gloriously reminded of how the story ends. And the big secret is, it doesn't. It doesn't end. God gives us life for death. The, 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 the glorious promise of the gospel is eternal life. He's changed the dark and grim ending to the greatest feast of all. Death becomes new birth. Life and love overcome death and evil. God has raised Jesus from the dead. And moreover, God has declared the gospel to us. That if we believe and repent, repent that it is all ours for free. Then, like he did for Paul in prison... Jesus appears to us here and tells us, be of good cheer. The story's not done. Your circumstances are no problem for me. I have all authority in heaven and earth, and you can rest in me. Now go, take dominion, and fight the good fight. I am with you, and you are not alone. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body the church. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.